Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. As Kate says, I think actually this is my fourth visit. And so uh, some of the topics I've raised in previous talks I'll, I'll cover tonight as well, but this talk will be very self-contained. And it's going to be somewhat different in style from the previous talks because uh, music is going to feature in it quite a lot. Now, my title is The Cosmic Consciousness Connection, Linking Science and Spirituality. And actually, I think I have to thank Kate for the picture yeah. because I, I like the picture so much that I made, put it in my first slide. But maybe I should explain where the title comes from. And really, it's an amalgamation of three important books, or three books which certainly had a, a big effect on me. And you may remember some of these. The, the first was The Cosmic Connection by Carl Sagan. And that was about the physical cosmos. And uh, I, I don't know how many of you saw that series, but it, it, it certainly got me interested many people in, in the developments of astronomy and cosmology. The second book um, is called The Cosmic Un The Conscious Universe, and this was by Dean Radin. Now, Dean Radin is a, he's a parapsychologist, and he's interested in, in what we call psychical phenomena, the sort of phenomena which aren't explained by normal science, but which involve consciousness. And like Radin, I believe these phenomena are real, and, uh, and in some sense uh, should be part of science. Now, the third book is a much older book called Cosmic Consciousness, and this was by uh, Richard Buck. And this was a reference to mystical experience. And so really, this talk is going to be an amalgamation of my interests in cosmology, psychical research, and mystical experience. And it's going to be a bit more personal than other talks I've given. And in fact, I want to start off by giving a little personal anecdote as to how I got interested in these three topics. And what happened was, I was at a boarding school, and when I was about 15, um, I misbehaved. And as a result of misbehaving, I was confined to my room, except for lessons. That was a punishment. I won't say what I did, which was wrong. Um, <laughs> But what I did was I read three books in that one week. And these three books actually transformed my life because they determined my future interests. The first book was about relativity theory, and that was by Bertram Russell. The second book was by J.W. Dunn. It was a, called An Experiment with Time. And this was describing how he had various precognitive dreams and then how he tried to have a theory to explain those precognitive dreams. The third book was a book connected with Buddhism. It's called The Third Eye by someone called Lob Sang Rampa. I should explain that I'm, I'm a, I am a Christian, an Anglican, um, but I'm also very interested in, in, in other religions as well. And this whetted my appetite for Buddhism. And I should say, I, I'm not very impressed now looking at, back on this book, but nevertheless, it got me interested in Buddhism. And so you see, those are the three astronomy, psychical research, mystical experience. 
This is really how it was born for me. When I went to Cambridge a few years later as a student, I immediately joined the Cambridge University Astronomical Society, the Cambridge University Society for Psychical Research, and the Cambridge Buddhist Society. And I know this is a Christian group, so I, I, I didn't give up Christianity, but, I, but I, I developed an interest in Buddhist philosophy and I started meditation, things like that. And so after I graduated, I, I then continued these interests, but my professional life, I became an astronomer. I, I did my PhD with uh, Stephen Hawking, in fact, and now I'm, uh, I'm actually, I retire at the end of this month, but, but I became a professor of mathematics and astronomy, first at Cambridge, now at London. But I've always kept up my interest in psychical research and in, in religion and mystical experience. But um, obviously I haven't spent so much time as that, but of those activities, um, I, I, I would say I've, I've certainly not, in my mystical path, I've certainly not been very successful, I would say. I guess I've been moderate, moderately successful in my professional career as a cosmologist. I've been a bit of a failure in my mystical, my mystical path, but I'm still very interested in it. And uh, I, I don't expect to attain enlightenment in this life, but, um, but maybe it will all help. Now, um, so the, my talk is really going to talk about these, these topics. Uh, basically about my studies of astronomy and study of matter, uh, mind and spirit, and then get to talk about consciousness and psychic and spiritual experience. Um, and then my own a particular attempt to expand science to accommodate spiritual experience, which is going to involve psychical phenomena and higher dimensions, which is going, might sound a bit exotic, but I'll explain what I mean later on, if I get onto that. But as I said, the key thing, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to have pieces of music. Partly because um, it makes a break. My talks tend to be maybe a little bit too heady and it gives people a break to enjoy the music. But also because the music is, is conveying a certain message. And in a certain sense, you know, my talk is talking about um, head, heart and spirit. And the music is at the heart, I guess. Um, so it's a little bit like Desert Island Discs, a sort of spirit, spiritual Desert Island disc, but I won't have any records. I, in fact, I don't quite know how far I'm going to get. Now, this is my favourite picture, which I talked about at the previous, actually several of the previous talks. It's called the Cosmic Ouroboros. It's the snake which swallows its own tail. And around the body of the snake, you've got the various objects, types of structures which exist in the universe. So down at the bottom, we've got people. And as we go to the right, we, we get larger objects. In fact, uh, you get mountains, planets, stars. I, I can't point, there's no pointer, but the solar system, stars, galaxies, and, and the universe. As I go to smaller scales, um, I go to things like ants, amoebas, DNA, atoms, and subatomic physics, particle physics. And, and so what's beautiful about this is that it conveys, it contains all the things, physical structures, which exist in the universe. And you can think of it as a sort of clock um, in which every minute corresponds to a factor of 10 in scale. 
So as you go from the top, um, in an anti, well, in a clock, in an anti-clockwise direction, you start off at the smallest conceivable scale, which is called the Planck scale, and for every minute, the scale increases by a factor of ten. So by the time you get to the bottom, where humans are, you've got something like a centimeter, and then, well, a bit bigger than that. And then by the time you get to the edge of the universe, you've got 10 to the 30 centimeters. So that's, that's what's called the cosmic Eurobrus. And I'll explain why the head meets the tail later. Now, why I like this diagram is that it actually it, it summarizes our knowledge of the physical world. But also, it, it nicely illustrates the history of our understanding of the physical world. Because you see, the process of science has been one in which we expand our knowledge to ever larger and smaller scales. And as we've done so, our view of the universe has changed. And so let me just, first of all, just remind you of the outward story. I think in my first talk here, I spent a lot of time talking about this. I'm just going to summarize it briefly here. So the outward journey. Human beings start on the planet Earth. Um, they look further and further. So um, obviously, they start off with the geocentric view, where the Earth is the center, is the universe. And all the stars and things are, 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 are heavenly spheres, but we're at the center. Um, but then, of course, with Copernicus, we realize that actually the sun is the center of the universe. And the planet Earth just goes around the sun, and that was the heliocentric view. Then, if you come towards the beginning of the 20th century, we had the galactocentric view, which made us realize that our sun is just one of 100 billion stars which make up the galaxy. This is actually the Andromeda galaxy, not our own galaxy. We can't photograph, but ours looks much like that. Because at that time, people thought the galaxy was the universe. But then we discovered that actually, the galaxy is just one of a hundred billion other galaxies. And we had the, this is your hundred billion other galaxies. And in fact, we realized the universe is huge. And in fact, we can see out to a distance of something like 10, roughly 10 billion light years. And that's the cosmocentric view. So this is our universe. But actually then, Nowadays, cosmologists think that our, uni that our universe is just the distance we can see, but now we think there are many other universes out there. So our universe is just one of many universes. Perhaps, this is all speculation, we can't see these universes. So all these little bubbles here, they represent the uh, other, they represent different universes, and our visible universe is just a small patch of one of these bubbles. I actually wrote a book about this, so you're welcome to buy it, but I don't, it's not in your book collection. So that's the outward journey. And of course, I've gone over, I've described history of about you know, 300 years there. So what do we learn from that journey? Well, one thing I should say, another thing we've learned is that visible matter is only, a t which we see, things like you and me, is a tiny, only a very, very small fraction of the universe. I've no time to go into the details, I think I did in an earlier talk, but basically, if you look at the universe, the visible material is only something like, you know, a, 
1%, well, less than 1% of the universe. Ordinary matter made of atoms is something like 4%. But most of the universe is dark. Our halo, a galaxy is surrounded by dark halos, and the whole universe is filled with dark matter, which takes up something like 25% of the universe's density. But actually, most of the energy, most of the universe is in what's called dark energy. And what's dark energy? Well, it's, it's something connected with the, um, what we call the cosmological constant. But basically, it's, it's empty space. Empty space has got energy. Now, I could give a whole lecture on this, but um, I just want to get across the point that even the physical universe is very mysterious. We're going to learn about the mysteries, of course, when you go beyond the physical universe, but there's plenty of mysteries in the physical universe. So what is the result of this outward journey? Well, first of all, what we call the universe is always growing. So we go from the geocentric, heliocentric, galactocentric, cosmocentric. The universe is always getting bigger. And so we, as human beings, have become increasingly insignificant. I mean, as regards our, the scale of things, human beings are completely, you know, on that little Euroborus picture, we're just at the bottom, we're tiny. And we only live, a, even the whole planet Earth is tiny. All of human civilization is completely insignificant. And we only exist for a flash, you know, in a cosmological time scale. Most of the universe is dark, so that's a bit worrying. Um, and also, no sign of God. I mean, in the old days, people used to think that maybe God was up there in space. Um, but we've looked to the edge of space, and he doesn't seem to be there. In fact, when the first um, cosmonauts went up, they, they, from, they were Russian, of course, and they reported with great glee that there was no sign of God. <laughs> So really, this is a, a rather depressing, it's a great triumph to have discovered this, but it's a little bit depressing in terms of the role of humans. This is a quote from David Lindley, who was actually one of my students. We humans are just crumbs of organic matter clinging to the surface of one tiny rock. Cosmically, we are no more significant than mold on a shower curtain. Okay, pretty depressing. And here's a little cartoon about it. This is a cosmologist, not me. If my work helps just one person feel like a tiny, insignificant speck, lost in a cold, uncaring universe, then I'm doing my job. <laughs> OK? But really, is it as bad as that? And now I want to tell you another personal anecdote, which happened in 1969. Um, and this was a program called The Violent Universe by Nigel Calder. I don't know if any of you ever saw that. It was about all the exciting developments in cosmology and astrophysics. And I was an undergraduate at the time. And what happened was there was a, a famous astronomer called Martin Schmidt who discovered quasars, objects at the distance, actually they're little early stages of galaxies. They're huge black holes swallowing up matter, but at the edge of the universe. And he's looking through the telescope at Mount Palomar in California, studying these quasars. And so I was watching this program. And then what happened 
As he was watching this distant quasar, he said to his assistant, he wanted some music, and he said, please put on Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. And, and as he played the music, he looked out in space, and you can see there that, almost that spiritual look in his eye. And for me, that was a, a really emotional moment, because it combined, first of all, the music, it was a, the fifth movement of the sixth symphony, the movement itself, the music moved me emotionally, but then the thought of this guy looking to the edge of the universe moved me spiritually, uh, intellectually. So now I've got the musical interlude, so I'm going to play a little bit of this um, music. I was so moved by that that I actually decided I was going to become an astronomer. I made two decisions. One, to become an astronomer, and two, to buy Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. <laughs> Until then, I only had Beatle records. <laughs> I had all these Beatle records, and then I had Beatles and Beethoven. Anyway, so that was a very transformative experience. Um, what about the inward journey? I've talked about the outward journey and how at first it seemed to make us really insignificant, and yet there's something very spiritually inspiring about it. What about the inward journey? Well, we of course looked to smaller scales using magnifying glass and microscopes and particle accelerators, and, and we, discovered, we discovered there were atoms Solid objects were really mainly empty space made of atoms. But we also discovered forces, the forces that determine the structure of these objects in the universe. And in doing this, we found interesting links between the small objects on the left and the large objects on the right. For example, the force that keeps the electron in orbit around the proton is the electric force. That's the same force which determines the structure of a solid, the, a solid object, the molecular forces determine the solid objects like a mountain or on the planet Earth. And then when we looked to smaller scales, we discovered that the protons themselves, the atoms are mainly empty space, electrons going around the protons, but the protons, they interact through the strong and the weak forces. Those are what hold the, the protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of an atom. And actually, those same forces operate in the, in the center of the sun. It's the strong force which enables the hydrogen to burn to helium in the star, and that's what keeps us alive. And, and the weak force controls how rapidly it happens. So again, you see this link, this force between the micro and the macro. There, however, it's not all good. This is a picture of the um, atom bomb, which, of course, has so far only been used well, twice, um, and hopefully won't be used again. And then there's the standard model of particle physics, and 
that, that, that's the standard model in the sense, the simplest model, which most people accept. Um, and that ex unifies the electric and the weak forces. It's what's called the electro-weak force. The weak force, well, these are the weak, I've told you about the electric force and the weak force, and in some sense they get unified in the standard model. And one of the great predictions of the standard model is that there should be this Higgs particle. You remember the Higgs particle? This is sometimes called the God particle. And this is where it was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Um, then, of course, uh, you go to higher, higher energies still. Um, there's what's called supersymmetry, which relates different types of particles. And the supersymmetry predicts the particles which are supposed to make up the dark matter. Remember I told you there's 25% dark matter? And then when you go to the even higher energies, you have the unification of the electric, the weak, and the strong forces, which is called gut, grand unification theory. But that grand unification theory also predicts the little fluctuations in the early universe which give rise to galaxies. So you see all the way, you're finding these forces of nature which connect the micro world to the macro world. And then right at the top, the smallest scale of all, um, is, the, is what's called M-theory. And M-theory, this is the scale of 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. You're probably wondering what M stands for. No, nobody really knows. Some people think it stands for M, for mystery. Some people think it stands for M for membrane. Anyway, this is meant to be the basis of reality. Now, I'm sorry, this is the uh, representation of the M theory. Now, well, great. So that's been very enlightening as well. But there too, um, it's been, well, let me just say a little bit more about the unification of the forces. All those different forces, the, the other great triumph of physics is that it explained how all these forces are actually unified. And so, again, this involves a bit of history. The electric and magnetic forces are unified as part of electromagnetism by Faraday and Maxwell. Some of these names may be familiar to you. Unification with the weak force, which I showed in my diagram, is electroweak theory, discovered by Stephen Weinberg, among others, a great atheist, but very smart. The strong force I mentioned is unified in, in the grand unification theory. This is a, well, this is a, a physicist called Gerhard de Hooft. Um, and then gravity, associated with Newton, of course, it's merged with M-theory. This is Ed Witten, who is a very smart physicist. Some people say he's the biggest brain on the planet. So, again, I can't go into the details, but I just want to get across qualitatively this idea that we understand this, there's a unity, a connectedness about the universe. And so that corresponds to a sort of a vertical link in this diagram between these different forces. So that's the link between microphysics and macrophysics. Now, why, why does the snake swallow the tail? Well, that's because of the Big Bang. We I have no detail, I haven't got time to go into the details. The universe is expanding. So if you go back in time, everything started off in a state of great compression called the Big Bang. And the Big Bang occurred about 14 billion years ago. And that means that um, 
as light travels at a finite speed. Okay? So as you go, if you look at something a million light years away, that means you're looking a million years into the past. So if you look at something 14 billion light years away, you're looking back into the past so far that the universe was very, very small. And so that is why the Big Bang, the very large meets the very small. Because when you look out to that great, great distance, you're looking back to when the universe was as small as could be. And so that's why the Euroboros, that's why the head is the tail, the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, if you like, is the, it's the ultimate it's connection between the micro and the macro world. OK, great, what a triumph. There's the Big Bang, that's the micro, and it's all to do with the vacuum. Remember, the vacuum makes up 70% of the density of the universe. OK, that's, that's somehow where it all starts, empty, empty space. Um, and actually, of course, we have the famous Big Bang theory. So it starts as what's called a singularity, a state of great compression. And late, as time goes forward, which is upwards in this diagram, you eventually get galaxies. But it's interesting, actually, the person who discovered this theory was George Lemaitre, who was a priest. Abbe Lemaitre. He's called the father of the Big Bang. And he actually proposed this model. It's called the model of the primeval atom, because it was a big, big atom, he thought of it as a big atom. At a session on science and spirituality at a meeting of the British Association in 1932, 86 years, 86 years ago. Okay, so that's the irony that although people think of cosmology and theology as being distinct, it was actually a priest who came up with this theory. Um, and in fact, this is, again, I've got no time to go into the details. We now understand, cosmologists, what the history of the universe is from the early stage of the Big Bang through inflation, quarks, nucleon, helium, the dark ages, till we form galaxies, till we form ourselves. Now, I can't go into the details of this. I think I've talked about it in one of my previous talks. But basically, the Big Bang starts in the compressed state. It expands. You make galaxies. You make stars. And here we are, looking back and talking about and listening about how the universe began. Um, so, however, this inward journey, which seems to be such an intellectual triumph, has also shattered our view of the world, just like the outward one did. Atomic theory has taught us that solid objects are mainly empty space. Quantum theory, which I've not really spoken about, tells us that even atoms aren't really particles like billiard balls. It's, they're all fuzzy. I might come on to that later. To these unified theories I talked, told you about, M theory, coming out of the head of this big brain, Ed Witten, uh, they involve all sorts of strange concepts like extra dimensions, which you can't see. In fact, in M theory, there are 11 dimensions in total. Three space, one time, and seven extra dimensions. Um, and then finally, you get to theories of quantum gravity where even space and time don't exist. So our cherished common sense notions are destroyed, which is pretty unsettling. So the inward journey has actually been just as stressful. I know you had a stressful journey today, um, Kate. Well, this journey of physics and science has also been stressful. Um, now. And in fact, Weinberg, 
who was responsible for the electoral weak unification, he said, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. Okay? Pretty depressing. However, not every physicist thinks of it that way. Many physicists see some spiritual aspect in the universe. And I already mentioned that when I played the first piece of music. And these are the names of some of the physicists. Um, this is a book by um, Ken Wilbur, Quantum Questions. And these are some of the physicists, so I won't name them all, who, who, who could be regarded as spiritually inclined. And the top of the list is Einstein. And actually, I believe you had a talk last week by, by Ravi Ravindra. And he wrote a book. Uh, it's called Science and the Sacred, which I was going to give to Brittany, but she's, she's not here, but maybe I'll give it to Kate instead. There's a chapter in there called Science as a Spiritual Path. Ravi was a physicist and a philosopher, I should say is a physicist and a philosopher and a theologian. And you, you had him last week. Einstein, of course, is, his, is the most famous. Einstein had something wise to say about anything. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and of all science. Those to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, are as good as dead. Their eyes are closed. Also, Einstein made this famous remark, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. Now bear in mind, Einstein wasn't religious in a conventional way. He, he sort of had a Spinozan view of God as a great intelligence, perhaps, behind the universe. But nevertheless, I, I would count him as a spiritual person. Um, now, I mentioned that my PhD supervisor was Stephen Hawking, who, of course, sadly died recently. He wrote a um, his famous book, The Brief History of Time, which I expect most of you bought, but very few you were read to the end, but, but this is what he says at the end. If we do discover a complete theory, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know a mind of God. So you might think, ha-ha, so Stephen believes in God, but no, he doesn't actually. Stephen was a, really a, a convinced atheist, and I, he said that rather tongue-in-cheek. In fact, I think he was told it would increase the sales. <laughs> Um, and um, actually, um, oh, sorry, this is a picture of me when I was a student at Caltech, me, Stephen, and our secretary. This was a long time ago. This was in 1975. So I had a beard in those days, not younger. Um, Stephen, you know, he was blessed by three popes. And he's buried in Westminster Abbey. His, his ashes are interred in Westminster Abbey last July. So he, had, he certainly had all the advantages if you were going to be a spiritual person. But actually, Stephen, I don't think, would have um, regarded, he certainly wouldn't regarded himself as a spiritual person. I'm sure some of you have seen the theory of everything. This, of course, was the title of, this is what Stephen's aim in physics was, to find the theory of everything. And he never completely succeeded. But the film was a wonderful film. But you know it was about his love affair with his first wife. And to me, it was rather ironic, because that's the one thing a theory of everything will never describe. It doesn't discuss human relationships like love. So I always imagined, I, I was 
fortunately, I was at the premiere, and I actually was next to Stephen and that, so I could study Stephen. And I know he enjoyed the film, so I always imagined the headlines the next day might have been, Stephen Hawking finds the theory of everything enjoyable. <laughs> but this is the funny thing, you see. Stephen, um, he was very against philosophy, and he's very against theology. He would never regard himself as a spiritual person. And yet, Stephen was a spiritual inspiration. Through his fight against adversity, and through his discoveries, he inspired people spiritually. And so, I find it rather strange that even if you aren't spiritual, you can be a great source of spiritual inspiration. Now, Stephen, I just... Um, Stephen thought physics was behind everything, but even his whole life, to me, indicated that there's a mystery about things. For example, Stephen's great heroes were Galileo and Einstein. And when I went, Stephen, in 1975, he got a, a, he got a medal from the Pope, Pope Paul, and I went with him to the Vatican, and he got the medal, but he also insisted on going down into the archives to read Galileo's recantation. Now, why did he have this affinity? Stephen was born 300 years to the day after the death of Galileo. Okay? But also, he had an affinity with him because um, in many ways he was like Galileo. He was a bit of a rebel. Um, his other hero, of course, was Einstein. Well, he died on Einstein's birthday. I've always thought it was a wonderful coincidence. And, uh, and also, Stephen's famous because he discovered what are called singularity theorems, which said that space-time paths, funny things can happen at the beginning and the end. So I always thought this was a wonderful synchronicity, the, the mystery of singular endpoints. And um, because Stephen's beginning point and end point were mysterious. And he wouldn't have attributed anything strange to that. But, but to me, it's, it seems to suggest there's something funny. Certainly something funny about time. Now, I was very lucky to go to the, the service in Westminster Abbey where Stephen's ashes were interred next to Isaac Newton. Can you believe that? Next to Isaac Newton? I mean, the last person to be interred in Westminster Abbey was um, Lawrence Olivier. And the only previous physicist was Rutherford. It's just Rutherford and Newton. A tremendous honor. Anyway, at the end of it, there was some music played um, by the famous Greek composer, um, um, Chariots of Fire, Vangelis, Vangelis. And I'm going to play you a bit of this. This is the bit which I'm not sure you should be recording, Kate, or might because I'm not sure we're allowed to. Um, Record it. Now, uh, let's see how this works. So this is the music composed by Vangelis for Stephen. Okay. So I think you will have seen there the, that there was a, a spiritual aspect to Stephen, even though he would never claim to be spiritual. Okay. So, to summarize our story so far then, we've got this picture of the universe. But there's something missing in this picture. It's talking about the physical world, 
what it's missing is any reference to mind or consciousness. Now, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on mindfulness nowadays, okay, in meditation. But this picture is completely mindless. So this wonderful picture might be described as the triumph of mindlessness. But what I want to now argue, and what many people have argued, is that actually mind is a fundamental and not an incidental feature of the universe. I mean, physicists don't deny that minds exist, but they just regard minds as the sort of the, the, far, the excretion of the brain, okay? But the, the neurons fire and we have our consciousness. So there's nothing more to it than that. Mind plays a purely passive role. But what I want to say is that mind is fundamental and not just incidental to the universe. And actually, there's quite a lot of arguments for this. So there's a picture of the eye, which of course represents the eye as in me, as well as the physical eye. And there are quite a lot of arguments for saying it's fundamental, and I'll go through some of these arguments. Um, and some of them might be well known to you, others might not be, but I'll just give you an overview. It's the comprehensibility of the universe, the beauty of the universe, the fact that the universe seems to be fine-tuned for observers. Quantum theory seems to suggest that observers do play a crucial role even in physics. Um, and then the whole Euroborus, in some sense, represents the expansion of mind. You remember I told the his described the history of science as an expansion up of our not awareness up the Euroborus. So, let me quickly go through these arguments. The comprehensibility of the universe. This is James Jeans, who said, this is way back in the 1930s, the universe is more like a great thought than a great machine. The beauty of the universe. This is Paul Dirac, one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. He, he's got a plaque in Westminster Abbey, but his ashes aren't interred there. He, he was an atheist, too. And he said, it's more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiment. What's, nice, what's so striking about that Euroborus is the unity and the beauty of, of, of the equations that essentially unify our understanding of the universe. And Dirac, who was such a great physicist, for him, beauty was paramount. But beauty, of course, is a feature of mind. And, um, and so, and mathematics here plays a fascinating role. This is quite a long quote from a friend of mine called Alex Vilenkin. It follows that the law should be there even prior to the universe itself. Does this mean that the laws are not mere descriptions of reality and can have an independent existence of their own? Posing that as a question. In the absence of space, time, and matter, what tablets could they be written upon? The laws are expressed in the form of mathematical equations. So all of these physics theories, they all couch in terms of mathematics. If the medium of mathematics is the mind, does that mean that the mind should predate the universe? So this is the tablets. This is, um, I guess, this is uh, 
God or is it Moses? I'm not sure with the, uh, Einstein's equations. But the equations, in some sense, seem to perceive the physical universe itself. That's what we call, it's the miracle of mathematics. That the, and so, in fact, you've got this rather strange picture that the world is described by mathematics, physics comes out of mathematics, the physics generates the universe, the, generates, the universe gives rise to life, the life gives rise to mind, and then mind thinks of the mathematics. So there's this amazing cyclic effect here, which is a mystery. Here's something Bert Russell. The true spirit of delight, the exaltation, the sense of being more than man or woman, which is the touchstone of the highest excellence, is to be found in mathematics as surely as in poetry. So, and that's what Dirac was saying. I mean, not everyone, you have to be a mathematician to appreciate the beauty, but if you are a mathematician, the beauty is there. And what's more, it's a sort of beauty which is there for all time. Obviously, beauty in art tends to go through trends, but that's okay. The beauty in mathematics is eternal. Um, and indeed, some people have even said, numbers are as close as we can get to the handwriting of God. And I'm going to be a little bit egocentric here. There is a picture of me <laughs> with uh, lots of equations. The handwriting of God behind me. Actually, I think that's rather pretentious. I mean, uh, a much, I think a more profound remark comes from Rumi. Silence is the language of God. Um, all else is pure translation. I much prefer that, that quote. But actually, I think everything is the language of God music, writing, equations, but obviously God speaks in, in, in many ways. You might ask, why is the universe, I, I pointed out that the universe is huge, it's, it's something like 14 billion light years in, across. And we're just one, for all we know, we might be the only form of life in the universe. And that's made us so insignificant. So then the question is, well, why are you know, why are we, why is the universe so big? If we're the only people in the universe, uh, you can pose this in a theological sense, if God created the universe for us, why is the universe so big? Well, this is the, the mechanistic argument, is that the universe began with a big bang. The big bang was 10 to the 10th years ago. So the size of the observable universe is the distance light has traveled, which is 10 to the 10th light years. So there's no particular reason for this. But there's another view, it's called the anthropic view. Anthropic is the Greek word for man, by Bob Dickey. This says, life requires heavy elements, which are made in stars, okay, like the sun. So there can be no life before stars are born, and then the stars explode and spread the elements, heavy elements throughout the universe. So there can be no life before a star is burnt, and that takes about 10 to the 10th years. On the other hand, if you wait much longer than 10 to the 10th years, there'll be no stars, there'll be no life either, because we need the stars to stay alive. So what this says is that the size of the universe is determined by the fact that we have to be here. Okay, if you want us to be here, the universe has to have an age of roughly 10 to the 10th years, and a lifetime of roughly, a size of roughly 10 to the 10th light years. So, 
That explains why the universe is so big. And it doesn't mean the universe doesn't exist. It says we observers can only be around when it has its observed size. So you see the very hugeness of the universe, which makes us seem so insignificant, actually is a reflection of the fact we are here. And that's what's called an anthropic argument. Now, I, I spent a lot of time working on the so-called anthropic principle. I, I wrote my first paper on it with Martin Rees in 1979. In those days, it was very controversial. Most physicists thought it was far too philosophical or theological. Now it's almost mainstream. Now, the point about the Big Bang is that if you go through the history of the, the Big Bang, you get this build-up of complexity, of more complex systems, which you actually saw in the Euroboros. So as, as you go through time, you get quarks and nucleons and atoms, molecules, bar molecules, and then you start, once you've got planets and stars, you get cells and organisms and, and you get life. So this is a pyramid of complexity. But what people didn't realize is that that only arises because the various physical constants are fine-tuned. We don't understand the value, even the standard model doesn't explain the values of the physical constants. And yet the physical constants have to have very special relationships in order for this, for, in order for us to be here. And that's what's called the anthropic argument. Um, so again, this is an argument coming from physics which says that we are important. As I'm sure you've heard many times, quantum theory is the point in physics where it looks as though consciousness seems to come in. The one place in physics where consciousness comes in. You see in the Newtonian picture of of physics, the universe is a giant machine which operates completely independently of whether anybody's watching it. But in quantum theory, consciousness affects the universe. Um, matter is described, microscopic matter is described by what's called a wave function, a sort of probability of where things are. And consciousness, in some pictures, according to Eugene Wigner, collapses the wave function. Um, so, for example, um, you can imagine the Big Bang evolves to form galaxies and stars and people. The people look back on the Big Bang and brings the universe into reality. That's what, not everyone believes that, but that's uh, one particular interpretation. Um, You've probably heard of uh, David, Henry Stapp argues that the consciousness can, can even change how, determine how the wave function collapses. That's relevant when you try and explain certain Psychophenomena. David Bohm, who was a very mystically inclined physicist, you may have heard of, he, he inferred from quantum theory that there's an implicate order which underlies the explicit order in the physical world. And there's a lot of interest from people like Penrose and Hameroff as to how quantum processes going on in the brain, um, in the microtubules of the brain, are of quantum, of a quantum nature. So there's a whole interest in the links between quantum theory and consciousness. Um, oh, this is a nice extra picture, the universe creating itself. It's rather like reminiscent of and drawing themselves. But then also, there's the blossoming of consciousness. Now, I, I described in, right at the beginning of my talk how historically um, we become aware of large, ever larger and smaller scales. And you can sort of plot this historically at the various centuries. 
you can ask what is the, at the 12th century, we're just a, a, aware of that range of scales, the 16th century, that range of scales, the 20th century, that range of scales. Now, the 20, oh, we, yes, the 21st century, we basically already seen to the edge of the visible universe, and we've, we've, we've confirmed the Higgs particle. So this is how far we've got so far. So basically, the Euroborus is the blossoming of consciousness. The universe becomes aware of itself. So how bizarre it is to say that consciousness and mind are irrelevant. So then you want to ask, now I'm going to be the astronomer. One question, of course, you want to ask is, are we alone in the universe? I told you how big the universe is. But obviously, a crucial question is, how many other civilizations, intelligent life forms are there, even in our galaxy? Let's just think about our galaxy. And that is a question of an enormous astronomical interest. And the answer is given by Drake's equation. Now, this is Drake's equation. I'm not going to go through it all. But basically, Drake's equation tells you how many intelligent civilizations there are in our galaxy at any time. And um, it's an equation which looks, it's a, lots of factors are multiplied together. Now, I'm not going to go through these factors because you're not going to, despite the fact that God speaks in numbers, I don't think you want me to go through this in great detail, but all of these numbers, they correspond to the rate of star formation, the fraction of stars with planets, the fraction of the planets that can support intelligent life, the, the average number of planets that can potentially support life, the fraction of civilizations that develop technology which is detectable from space, and things like that. So that's the Drake's equation. But the fact of the matter is, we don't actually know. There are so many uncertainties there. We don't actually know how many civilizations there are in the galaxy. But historically, each of these factors have you know, become more clear. What we do now know is that there are many, many other solar systems. We've now found a thousand, several thousand extrasolar planets outside our solar system. Uh, and this is the Kepler satellite which is actually looking at a certain region in the Milky Way galaxy for planets. It looks at the stars, and it looks for the wobbling of the stars to see if there's a planet there. And I'm very proud, because my colleagues at Queen Mary College discovered um, an Earth-like planet, and it's very close. It's called Proxima Centauri. Uh, you probably know Alpha Centauri. You know that star? It's only, um, it's only um, six light years away. And nearby, there's another star called Proxima Centauri. Um, and this is actually, has got a planet, an Earth-like planet. It's called the Pale Red Dot. Sorry, this is the planet. So Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B are two stars. And Proxima Centauri is the planet. Um, this is probably what it looks like. Um, it's our neighbor and it, there are the two stars. You, if you were sitting on this pla Earth-like planet, it's the Earth-mass planet, you would see the two stars, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri. Um, and, um, and in fact, there's even plans to go there. There are even plans to send a flotilla of little micro-satellites there, um, driven by lasers in the next 25 years. And this was discovered by Queen Mary College. Not by me, but I'm very proud of that. I mean, but you see, this is, raises the question, 
it's, it's a profoundly spiritual question whether we are alone in the universe. Either we are the only life form in the universe, in which case life is really precious. Okay, we mustn't destroy ourselves. Or there's thousands of life intelligent civilizations like Star Trek, you know, in the galaxy and even more in the universe. And we're part of a, of a, a broader sort of galactic cosmic mind, which is also very spiritually significant. Now, one of the puzzles, it's called, maybe I'm going into about this too much detail, but it's called the Fermi paradox. And one reason people say we might be alone is because we haven't seen any evidence for any other aliens. And the idea of the Fermi paradox is that um, if you have developed technology to produce spacecraft, you can program spacecraft, robotic spacecraft, to go around and, and create other spacecrafts and explore the galaxy. And after 30,000 years, so this is just how, after 300,000 years, we've explored the galaxy. Um, after a million years, we would have got through the whole galaxy. Um, and then after 10 million years, the whole galaxy should be teeming with life. So the question is, why haven't we seen them? Why is nobody talking to us? Okay? If there was just one source of life in the galaxy, within 10 million years, it should have basically spread throughout the galaxy. So unless we're the first, how come we've not seen them? Well, that's what's called the Fermi paradox. And uh, sometimes people say, therefore, we must be alone. I don't believe that, actually, but, but nevertheless, the fact is we don't see, we're, we're certainly not teeming with aliens. Are there any in this room? <laughs> now, um, I want, I'm going to end this part of the talk now, and I want to actually um, um, end with a piece of music. One of my heroes was John Lennon. I don't know if any of you were Beatle fans, but he was, I, I loved his music, but I, he was also quite a, one of my heroes. Um, I'm married to a Japanese lady, so I feel quite a kinship, because he, of course, was married to Yoko Ono. And when I was with my wife in Japan, we went to the same um, hotel where John Lennon stayed with his wife. And so this is the picture taken in the same place. This is me and my, sorry, it's a bit egocentric, but this is me and my wife, and this is John Lennon and his wife, and, his, and Sean, his, his son, and, and the, the nanny. And so I always like this. It makes it look as though we were pals, you know. But actually, it separated 1977 to 2011. Um, so we weren't there at the same time. And I'm afraid I never met John Lennon. But uh, nevertheless, I would like to pay tribute to him by just ending this session by playing a piece of music which is uh, across the universe. So Lennon, I don't know, he was a spiritual person. I mean, he obviously had some human failings. But like Hawking, um, I think he was spiritually inspiring. And that song obviously was relevant to my talk. And, and I like the chorus, nothing's going to change my world, because I'm sure you know the key thing about the spiritual path is you have to change. So his statement that nothing is going to change his world is, is really rather ironic because in the spiritual tradition, you have to change your world. And so I think I will stop at this point for, for the tea break. Someone asked the question in the break about whether what, what Christianity 
what is the relevance of Christianity to extraterrestrial civilizations? If we do contact aliens, which I think we will do, what does Jesus mean to them? Has Jesus visited all these places, or is it another Jesus? And, and, and also, how do you reconcile biblical religious truth and scientific truth? And um, I was saying, in, in answer to the question, there is a problem in, in relating science and religion, in particular cosmology and religion. And the, the, because cosmology is, is, tends to be constant, in, it, it's the same everywhere in space. Everywhere in the world has the same cosmological picture, but the cosmological picture is always changing. On the other hand, religion is all, tends to be the same, but varies where you are in, in the world. You know, so by and large, Christianity doesn't change, Buddhism doesn't change, um, Islam doesn't change. So, and so there's a basic, obviously a basic question, how do you reconcile, if you're trying to reconcile science and religion, how can you do it? And, and I think that the, um, there's a nice song here which addresses this. It's by a friend of mine called Nancy Abrams. And she precisely asked that question. She had a friend who was um, an astrophysicist, but also a Jesuit priest. And that was precisely the question she asked him. If you go to an alien, what will their version of the story of creation be? This is the song. The alien wisdom must unfold this Bible that you hold. So I don't know if you could hold, if you could hear the words, but I think it I answered the question which was, I was asked in the coffee break, I think, quite nicely. Um, I think I'm going to talk about consciousness. Um, you see, the problem with science is that at the moment, the mainstream view of science is based on the fact there is only one reality, which is materialism. It's based on the idea that everything can be explained by physics, which is what I've talked about in, in the earlier parts of my talk. Local interactions are bits of matter. That's what's called reductionism. And, and consciousness is generated by the brain. Okay, so our consciousness is just the, the result of physical processes going on in the brain. And also, religion, spirituality, mystical insights, all of those are illusions. And so that's atheism. So this is the sort of view, not all scientists hold, but quite a lot of scientists take that view. And um, especially in certain quarters. But that is not the message of science, that is what we call scientism, which is a very dogmatic, fundamentalist form of science. And the really deep scientists, I would say, don't take that view. I, I'm going to disagree with all of these things. I'm not a materialist, I'm not a reductionist, I'm not an epiphenomenalist, I'm not an atheist. And I'm probably a minority, but I'm quite a number of me who share that view. And I think perhaps the, um, so the idea of materialism, for example, 
Eccles, the assertion that science will one day arrive at a completely materialist explanation for every phenomena, including consciousness. That's what we mean by promissory materialism. But then he goes on to say, this is a superstition without a rational foundation. It is simply a religious belief held by dogmatic materialists who confuse their religion with their science. It has all the future features of messianic prophecy. And I know Rupert Sheldrake has spoken here in his, in his book, The Science Illusion. So what I'm saying is that if you want to merge science and spirituality, you have to say no to materialism. You have to accept that there is a higher level of reality. But actually, I think the one fundamental question is, is consciousness generated by the brain? Because if consciousness is created, is just created by the brain, then almost certainly everything else we experience, like the um, our religious feelings, are also a creation of the brain. And so um, a lot of people do not think consciousness is created by the brain. They think that the brain is merely a transmitter of consciousness. But here are the different views. So for example, You've got the scientists who say, yes, it is. Crick, a person's mental activities are entirely due to the behavior of nerve cells, etc., and the atoms and ions and molecules that make up and influence them. Marvin Minsky, the brain is just a computer made of meat. <laughs> He's died now, so he knows perhaps. And then um, Catherine Solsk now Thinking is just the meat talking to itself. It's generated by the brain, and when we die, unfortunately, that dies with us. We can state that categorically. Notice the categorical. On the other hand, equally talented scientists say other things. Steven Pinker, how could consciousness possibly arise from the brain? Beats the heck out of me. I have some prejudices, but no idea how to begin to look for a definite answer, a defensible answer, and neither does anyone else. Stuart Kaufman, nobody has the faintest idea what consciousness is. I don't have any idea, nor does anybody else, including the philosophers of mind. Freeman Dyson, an eminent physicist, the origin of life is a, a total mystery, and so is the existence of consciousness. We have no clear idea how the electrical discharges occurring in the nerve cells in our brains are connected with our feelings and desires and actions. There are correlations between what we experience and what goes on in the brain. But that doesn't mean the brain generates experience. Just like with a TV screen, you know what you're seeing doesn't go on, on the, inside the TV. And so the question is, how fundamental is consciousness? Physicists try to sometimes think that consciousness is just generated by the brain, but other people say, no, consciousness is more fundamental. And these are physicists, Max Planck, I regard consciousness fundamental. I regard matter as a derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. Now, even physicists are only talking about the contents of their consciousness. Wigner, it is not possible to formulate the laws of physics in a fully consistent way without reference to consciousness and the observer. Chomsky, physics must expand to explain mental experience. Wheeler, mind and universe are complementary. Despanier, the doctrine that the world is made up of objects whose existence is independent of human consciousness turns out to be in conflict with quantum mechanics and with facts established by experiments. 
Penrose. I'm sure you've read some of his works. My position demands a major revolution in physics. There is something very fundamental missing from our current science. Our understanding at this time is not adequate, and we're going to have to move to new regions of science. And so that's the key thing, consciousness. What is the origin of consciousness? Now, I'm not going to talk about psi. Um, I want to get on to uh, the, the view that many philosophers and mystics have come to. And they've come to the, the conclusion that actually there is only one mind. There is only one consciousness. So, Ralph Emerson. There is one mind common to all individual men, a universal mind. To divide or multiply consciousness is something meaningless. That's Schrodinger. Another quote from Schrodinger. There is obviously only one alternative, namely the unification of mind or consciousness. In truth, there is only one mind. David Bohm, deep down, the consciousness of mankind is one. This is a virtual certainty, and if we don't see this, it's because we're blinding ourselves to it. So, of course, there's no doubt we all experience ourselves as individual consciousnesses. With a little c, we're all separate beings. But what this is saying is that deep down, all consciousnesses are connected. They're all part of one big c. And that, that link, that connectedness, is the basis of psychic phenomena, but also the basis of spiritual experience, mystical experience. Um, this is what's called the, the, the one mind. There's a nice book by Larry Dossie called One Mind, where he, he sort of accumulates all the evidence for this view. Um, creativity. Creativity, one could say, is evidence for this. Edison. People say I've created things. I've never created anything. I get impressions from the universe at large and work them out. But I'm only a plate on a record or a receiving apparatus. Sorts are really impressions that we get from outside. Marla, my symphonies will be something that the world has never heard before. I tell you, at certain places in the score, a quite uncanny feeling takes possession of me, and I feel as if I had not created this myself. Laszlo, some acts of creativity, particularly when sudden and unexpected, are not due to a spontaneous and largely unexplained stroke of genius, but to an elaboration of an idea or a pattern in two or more minds in interaction. Yates, the borders of our minds are ever-shifting, and many minds can flow into one another and create or reveal a single mind, a single energy. The borders of our memories are shifting, and our memories are part of one great memory. And so... Somebody asked me, we were having a discussion over coffee about do scientists get all their great ideas from their own minds or do they come from outside? Well, scientists like to think they've had the ideas, but it's quite clear that a lot of deep scientific inspiration actually comes from, I think, from outside. And so that's, I think, the, the main message. So I told, you know, I, I showed this pyramid of complexity. You remember those anthropic fine tunings? And in some sense, um, the implication was that consciousness and mind and spirit, if you're a, a materialist, a reductionist, you would just say that these are things which are generated by life. Life generates brains, and then brains generate consciousness, which generates mind, which generates spirits. So that's the sort of reductionist view. But how can that be possible if there's only one consciousness? Well, I think the real picture is this. I think that underlying all of this 
is spirit, mind, and consciousness. And that, in other words, I personally, I may be wrong, of course, not all physicists are going to believe with me, but I think consciousness is fundamental and that our consciousness, with a little c at the top, is just the, that is the experience of the big consciousness when it perceives the world through these brains. That's my particular sort of philosophical perspective. And that's not only true of consciousness, it's true of mind and spirit, but with a big M and a little, and a big S. So that's my particular perspective. And somehow that's what I want to get into some, whatever this the final theory is going to be. So actually, I think of consciousness as being a sort of hierarchy. And um, there's human consciousness, but we know there's also a sort of global consciousness. The Earth is one. We have a collective memory, a collective intelligence, maybe a collective soul. And then maybe, I've talked about the possibility of other galactic civilizations, maybe there's a level of galactic consciousness. If there is intelligent life out there, we will eventually make contact with it. We'll be like tuning into the galactic internet. Actually, I have enough trouble dealing with the Earth's internet. But anyway, there will literally be a galactic mind, a galactic consciousness. And who knows, maybe there is a cosmic consciousness. And maybe, in some sense, you want to, you want to identify that cosmic consciousness as, as being part of God. But um, it's very naive to assume that the only form of consciousness in the universe is our little consciousness coming through this brain. I think consciousness can operate on different timescales. All these levels of consciousness have a different timescale associated with them. But they could all be equally valid. And in fact, I do believe that we are part of a global consciousness, a terrestrial consciousness, a galactic consciousness, and a cosmic consciousness. And maybe when mystics have their experiences, they become aware of that. Um, now, I'll get another little musical interlude. I haven't got much time now. Um, it's all very well talking about galactic consciousness and, and cosmic consciousness. Well, that's all a bit in the future. You know, maybe that's 10,000. Well, for some of us, it might be now. But for most people, it won't be for a while. But we are aware of, cosmic con of, of the terrestrial global consciousness. And um, I love this image. It's the image of the Earth, but also it's the image of the two hands praying. And I've got another musical interlude here. Um, and uh, do, have you, do you know the, 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 it's called Trip the Light? Have you seen Trip the Light? I'm gonna, it, I love it. Because the message of this is that all humanity, we're all one. And um, we, we, you know, from all the wars and all the battles, we're all one. And I just love this, and I'm going to play it for you. OK. Well. I think that's probably a nice place at which to end. Obviously, I've not got to the, um, I've not covered everything I was going to talk about. I, I, in fact, I haven't even begun to talk about my own approach, which is how you can actually have an extension of physics which can accommodate psychic and spiritual phenomena. And I think I will just leave that for another occasion. I mean, I have actually talked about these things um, in my previous talks, but um, all I will let me just say in one word what the approach I 
advocate is modern physics says there are extra dimensions. You remember I said that right at the beginning. There are extra dimensions in M theory. There are 11 dimensions in total. And our universe is just like a little slice, a four-dimensional slice called the brain in this higher-dimensional bulk. And physics is concerned primarily with what goes on on the brain in the material world. But my claim is that most psychic experiences involve a space, dream space, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, mystical experiences, they all involve a space. And, and so it might, the bottom line is that in my approach, the, the higher dimensional space, which comes from physics, is also able to accommodate mental and spiritual experience. And that would be a whole talk in itself. But I think because it's already nine o'clock, I think I'll just leave that for the future. And I hope that last film got across the idea that we really all part, are part of a global terrestrial consciousness. And maybe that's as far as we need to go tonight. And then in another talk, we can get on to galactic and cosmic consciousness and the higher dimensions. But I think I'll, I'll stop at that point. Thank you.